Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Today we return to Redemption Songs, Scroll of Esther edition. Well, to be sure, to fully appreciate what we're going to be studying today, <laughs> you're uh, eight chapters late. We have spent a lot of time together studying Megillat Esther and uncovering its incredible story, the subtext, which often is glossed over and easily missed when you just read the surficial story. But even if this is the first time you're joining, and even if this is the first time we'll be studying Megillat Esther together, I want to confidently say that you will find this informative, insightful, I'm pretty sure uplifting and inspirational as well. The amazing thing about all study of Scripture is that it uses precious few words to convey extraordinary range of ideas. Now, when we look at the scripture itself, at Psukim, oftentimes you might notice things that seem out of sorts. That's good. We have to ask those questions because it's the only way for us to discover the rest of the story. The story of the Scroll of Esther is fairly well known. I'm not going to recap the last eight chapters. Simply say that at this point, we are going to be devoting our attention towards the issue that was, the order, pardon me, that was issued by the king and Mordechai together with Esther and how that gets carried out. That is to say, in the words of the Malbim, he says, Ad Ata, up until this point in the book of Esther, Sipur, Siper, we have heard the story of, Eich Nitzlu Yisrael Min how the Jewish people were saved from the genocidal plans that had been hatched against them. Ad that leads us up till the appointed time. If not for the second set of letters, what's called Igeret HaPurim HaShenit, the orders that the king released along with Mordechai and Esther, the Jewish people would have been beaten in the streets. In fact, you probably would have seen, oh, dead Jews on a daily basis. Roving gangs and bands of people would have known that the Jews were slated for genocide. They would have known that they wouldn't be prosecuted by a criminal court if they eliminated a Jew or two, or three or four, or half a dozen. And you could always make up excuse. Surely it was the Jews who provoked the honorable citizens of the great Republic of Persia. Well, everything changed. Mordechai rose to greatness, and Haman, just before completing his 70th day in office, was hanging from the gallows he had prepared for his nemesis, the Rebbe, leader of the Jewish people, Mordechai HaYehudi. At this point, the story now focuses on Yom Hamugbul, the actual day which had initially been set aside or scheduled for the elimination of the nation of the Jewish people forever. And that's how Pedic Tess opens. In the words of the Ma'amlois, who begins his commentary on the ninth chapter on 
of Megillat Esther, he says this. He says, Hakosov melamdenu. This verse will serve to teach us, if we're willing to listen, of course. Ma gedol hoya hanes sha'asa Hashem Yisbaruch Yisrael. How extraordinary, how huge was this miracle that God did with Israel, as we are going to hear. So we'll begin now by looking into the Megillah, and whatever version you have is good, as long as it's uh, <laughs> the Torah true version. The ninth chapter of the book of Esther opens with the words, Uvishneim Asar Chodesh, in the twelfth month. Who? Chodesh Adar. This is the month we call Adar. It was called Adar at that time by virtually all people. The Hebrew names of the month, if you will, are actually Akkadian or Babylonian in nature. And at that time, they were the popular way to refer to the months of the year, much like January, February, March, and April are in today's day and age in most of Europe and all of North America and South America and in large swaths of Eurasia. The months are still known as January, February, March. That's how the 12th month of the lunar calendar, Adar, once was. And so the Megillah says in the 12th month, it's our 12th month, but this was widely followed. Many people use the lunar calendar. In the 12th month, which is Chodesh Adar, Bishalosha Asar Yombo, 13 days in. Asher Higia, Devar Hamelach Vedosalehiosis, the word of the king, his law had arrived to be, if you will, implemented or acted upon. So I want to stop right now. And there's an obvious question that has to be asked, and we'll ask it because it segues into the deeper message that these few verses, and in a sense, the entire chapter, is going to broadcast. Doesn't this seem a little bit superfluous? A little redundant? We know what that day was. It's been delineated multiple times in the scroll already. It was spoken of very specifically when Haman chose this day for his genocidal plans, it's identified when Mordechai and Esther remonstrate with the king that something must be done. You could have just said, the day arrived. Not only does the Megillah not suffice it to say, yom, or Ka'asher Hayom, when the day came in which in which the king's orders are supposed to be implemented or acted upon, what we have instead is the 12th month. Oh, in case you don't know what that is because you haven't been reading the Megillah up till this point, we're only in the ninth chapter. So you should know that that's the month of Adar. And it is Bishlosha Osarbo. We know all of this already. Scripture never repeats itself. There's nothing superfluous. There's got to be a very good reason that the Megillah was written in this fashion. So, that's the question. What's the deeper message? I'd like to take you on a little journey into the words of the Maharal of Prague because 
he highlights um, he highlights some incredible stuff. And then we'll see how some of the other commentators speak about it. But this really, to me, this was the most compelling, even most, most uplifting. I, I, uh, I found this like, wow. Because it doesn't speak to the material reality which we're reading about only, but it speaks to the spiritual energy that kind of backs all of this up. And a basic point that is reiterated again and again and again in the Megillah is that things are not the way they seem to be. That Hashem, Almighty God, is always present and ever involved. And nothing just happens. It's all choreographed. If we live with our eyes wide open, and if we take the time to observe things as they unfold, we will be able to see the unmistakable fingerprints, the hands of Hashem in every single nuance of our lives. And that's a tremendous effort of Avedus Hashem. That's what we're supposed to constantly strive to kind of work on and achieve in a sense of mindfulness, in a sense of emotional closeness to Hashem. That's what we celebrate each and every year in the extremely joyous holiday of Purim. So the Maharal wrote a commentary called Or Chadash. And before I begin, I'm going to read from inside the commentary and share with you. But before I begin, I just want to remind all of our listeners, watchers, and participants, both on YouTube and Facebook, but if you want to ask a question, I'm going to do my best to keep looking at the screen and I will try to respond. Now, I'm not looking at the Facebook screen though. I can't look at too many screens at once. So I'm looking at the YouTube screen. Please be on the YouTube channel. And if you type something into the, the chat, I will be able to Bezrat Hashem see it. Okay. So let's take a look into the words of Maral. Maral says, if you want to understand the ninth chapter, well, we need to go back. <laughs> he says, you need to go back to the third chapter. He says, please take a look at what I wrote. When Haman threw his lots and chose his day and rejoiced, that will enable you to appreciate what the Megillah is telling us now in chapter 9. The Maharal much, much earlier, in the third chapter, in the seventh verse. He addresses the, the query that is asked by many, what precisely was the cause for celebration? Why was Haman so happy when he drew his lots and he got Adar, and then he got 13, and he said, fantastic. He was a superstitious guy. He said, these numbers... They're very lucky. It was before 13 was an unlucky number. That's a euphemism. We don't believe in unlucky numbers. But, but Haman was buoyed by what he saw as an omenful, divine acquiescence to his baleful intent for the Jewish people. And by the way, he wasn't entirely wrong. Because at that point in time, due to our many sins, 
an enormous faux pas. We actually had this coming. The beauty of all this is everything gets turned inside out. But why was that? Lucky, if you will. Why, what was so great about Adar or the 13th? So the Maharal says, the month of Adar is the 12th month. There are 12 months in a year. In other words, that's the last month. What's the first, first month for the Jewish people? The month of Nisan. That's the month we celebrate our birth. Creation takes place in the month of Tishri. That's the natural order of things. The miraculous order, if you will, or that which broadcasts Jewish people's eternity is the first month of the year. And in antiquity, in, bi- in the early bi- biblical days, we didn't call months by their Akkadian or Persian names. We called it Chodesh Arishon, Chodesh Hasheni, Chodesh Hashlishi, first, second, third month, etc. Do you want to know why? Nachmanides tells us that's because we wanted to commemorate Yitzia, Exodus, Mimitzrayim. And by calling Nisan the first month, we documented our telling of time in accordance with our national birth and the mitzvot we received. The first mitzvah we got was to sanctify time. That makes Nisan the first month. You may well ask, then why don't we still call it by the numbers? Why do we go to names, especially if they aren't Jewish in origin? And the simple answer, as Nachmanides says, is because just as we wanted to remember the miracle of our birth, our sages wanted us to remember the miracle of our return. For no nation has ever been vanquished, displaced, dispossessed, and then come back to its homeland. Many would argue and perhaps correctly, that we really become a nation when we return to the land of Israel for the second time. It's beyond the purview of this class, but the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael is based on what we, the Jewish people, call the second coming, that is, our coming to Israel. This is perhaps a different kind of miraculous event, but no less significant. So, of course, we remember Yetzirah Mimitzrayim, and Nisan is eternally our first month, but we recall the miracle, the deliverance of Purim, and the fact that we were able to extricate ourselves from the bowels of a galut, of an exilic dispersion that threatened to consume us with apathy and assimilation. And they were able to receive the Torah, as it were, all over again. Purim is like an affirmation of Matan Torah itself and the subsequent rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash and the return to Zion was a, an extraordinary moment in our national history. Hence, Adar, Nisan, and so on and so forth. But going back to our point, the Maharal says it was important for... Haman to see 
that the, the month he had chosen was the 12th month. Why? He says, ah, Savur Hoya. He was thinking, since it had fallen in the 12th. What does 12 symbolize? This is the end of the year. Mora ze al hasof. This is symbolic of the end. And so he said, ha, sofa indicates ki bachodesh haze sof lahem. It's the end of the Jewish year. And in this month, we will mark the end of the Jewish people. And planet Earth will be Judenrein. This is how Haman saw it. This is what he aspired to. Another quote from Aral. It's the ultimate, the final month, perfect for his final solution. Now, what's so great about the 13th? Says the Maharal, and I'm kind of jumping back and forth in his commentary here. He says, Yom Yud Gimel Ra'uilaze. The 13th was especially appropriate, he thought, because he wanted to be sure that they were deep into Adar, at least 12 days into Adar. But he said, if we go more than 12 days into Adar, then I'm in danger of going past the 14th day, and that's 30 days before Pesach. The halacha is that the energy of Pesach takes root a full month before it arrives. As it is stated in the Code of Jewish Law, based on the statement in the Talmud, Shloshim Yom Lefnea Pesach, Shayachim Himlo Pesach. The 30 days, Maral says, before Pesach are connected to Pesach. Harishoyalim Vedorshim Behilchas Pesach Shloshim Yom. We are supposed to spend time focused on the teachings of how we should observe Pesach a full 30 days before. This is a clear statement of the Gemara in Mesechet Psachim, and it's brought down in the Code of Jewish Law. He says, all 30 days are connected to the holiday called Pesach. Now, he says, the last day of the month, the deepest we can be into Adar, which he saw as a nadir, an end, a whimper, the conclusion, the final month, he said, the deepest we can get into this without getting ourselves into something, well, propitious or joyous for the Jewish people, is the 13th day. That's as deep as we can go. Because once we go into day 14, exactly a month later, the Korban Pesach is supposed to be brought. And then the Jewish people are celebrating Pesach, and this represents their reflowering and their rebirth as a nation. And so he said, I need to make sure that we stay away from that, so to speak, finish line. That was his line in the sand. He didn't want to go past the 14th day. And then he said, Yom Yud Gimel, Ein Lo Shaychut Klal LePesach. 13 has no connection to Pesach whatsoever. And this gave him a very good feeling. He said, Pesach represents redemption. 
salvation. Here, we have actually dodged Pesach. We're deep in Adar. All the signs are pointing towards success. And so that's what the Maharal told us in the third chapter. Now the Maharal says in Orchodosh, in the beginning of this ninth chapter, he says, precisely because it was Haman who plotted and thought. The month of Adar bears with it a negative energy, the end of the year. Like this month is the end of all the months. So it will represent the end of the Jewish people. And he says, so what happened? The Maharal says that there is an element of Jewish eternity that is specifically emphasized or highlighted by this month. Why? Because, he says, if we exhaust or complete our efforts, we can't do anything else. But the rest is in God's hands. If we look at ourselves not as a nation like all other nations, our eternity is not rooted in our wisdom, determination, commitment, value system. Baloney. It's not true. That's not why we, the Jewish people, have outwitted, outfoxed, survived, and continue to triumph. It's because we are Hashem's special children. Umitzad Hashem Yisbarach, he says. As a result of being God's people, we have a kiyom nitzchi mitzad hasoif. It is precisely the end that speaks to our eternity because it's where we exhausted our possibilities and where we end, God and God's power begins. In other words, the Maharal says this month has two opposite ideas or energies attached to it. On one hand, if you look at us nationally, it's our final month. You know, the end is always kind of peters out with a whimper. But if you look at it from a divine perspective, if we are infused with an energy otherworldly, the end has no influence or impact on us. On the contrary, when we realize that we've ended or have spent our own wherewithal or abilities and place our trust in Hashem, then infinitude is the road we take. And therefore, the Maharal says, these are two opposites, two polar extremes represented by the month of Adar. You know, I was thinking, and I don't know if this is accurate, but I was just thinking that maybe this has something to do with the idea of the 49 gates versus the 50th. It's not a Purim thing, but when we get to Pesach, we begin to count. We're counting up to Shavuot. 
On one hand, we're told to count seven full weeks, which are 49 days, seven times seven. On the other hand, we're told to count 50, or to the 50th day. And the answer is, we count 49. That represents the extreme gamut of realizing all of our potential of possibilities. The Jewish people had fallen to the lowest nadir in Mitzrayim, what's called Memtes Sharetuma, the 49th gate or rung of impurity. Had they sunk any lower, we never would have been redeemed. And in a short seven weeks, we went not only from being Midas 49, but we started at ground zero and we moved to the 49th gate. But we never count 50 because 50 is beyond the purview of what a person can achieve. The only human being ever to have achieved 50 is Moshe Rabbeinu in the last hour of his life, and that's why he goes to Mount Nebo. The Arizal says that Mount Nebo, or Nebo, stands for Nun Bo. Posan Pesia Achas, he made a leap, says the Arizal. And he attained this in the last moments of his terrestrial life. But as a rule, we need to do our very best. When we exhaust our possibilities, when we've spent every ounce of strength we have, when we're fully depleted, that's when we look to Hashem. I think this is what the Maharal is saying, although I'm not a thousand percent certain. It seems to me that he emphasizes the month of Adar as the twelfth and final month representing kind of the end, spending the last energy we have. But on the other hand, it also has within it the concept of Hashem carrying us across the finish line and giving us eternity. So Haman focused on Am Yisrael as separated from God, as a people unto themselves. And as a people unto ourselves, we are not eternal. And it is possible to erase the Jewish people from history, just as every nation eventually fades into oblivion. There is no ancient nation who continues to live by the same ideas and ideals, uphold the same virtues and mores, speak the same language, do the same thing, worship the same God. There is no other nation who has not assimilated or evolved into something else, with the exception of us, the Jewish people. Some of you may not be Jewish and may not like hearing this, but it is a fact. There is no ancient people around today. You can say that some of the nations that exist today were preceded by ancient nations who may once have lived in the same geography, but Romans do not live in Italy today. Italians do. The original peoples who occupied just about every civilization are no longer. A new people has evolved or developed or grown out of them. And I know we have lots of Jewish people who have chosen to fly the coop. Well, one of two things happens. Either their children come home and rejoin us and become Torah Jews celebrating the eternity of Yiddishkeit, or sadly they fade away. This has been the case historically time and again. We're waiting for Mashiach now. And when Mashiach comes, every member of Am Yisrael will come home. But those who have already married out and assimilated away and are gone, 
no longer halachically Jewish. That's simply a tragic loss. We are the only people, the only people who has continued to live and to breathe with the same fervor and spirit as our ancestors in antiquity. Torah Judaism is the same Torah Judaism. It's the same Purim. It's the same Pesach. It's the same Shema Yisrael. It's the same Tefillin. It's the same Mezuzah. It's the same ideas and ideals. That doesn't come from us. That comes from Hashem. And so this is what Purim represents. And what happens here is that in this month, everything is turned inside out. Haman slated us for genocide because he saw us as a people distinct and separated from God. Adar, in the miracle of Purim, affirms the idea that we are but an extension of Hashem's presence. Exactly the opposite of what he thought and expected is what happened. That's why we say, This is the day that our enemies expectedly, expectantly hoped to rule over, to destroy us. And everything was turned inside out. Maharal says, You need to understand this well. And if you do, You will understand the secret of this scroll. That's the secret of the scroll. All of this, and much more, is of course contained in the emphasis in the beginning of chapter 9. In this very day, this is the day where the word of the king and his order. Now, you can't ignore the seeming redundancy here. Dvar HaMelech, the word or edict of the king, is one thing. And then it's Vidosai and his rule, his law or his decree. That's something else. What is the difference between the two? So, in Masas Moshe, Rabbeinu Moshe Alchech spends a lot of time in ink on trying to decipher this business as to Dvar HaMelech the word, or the edict, and then the law or decree. What's the difference between the two? He says, why do we speak of both leheyoses to be enacted or to be implemented? By Yoim, in this day, asher sibru which the enemies of the Jewish people had hoped or expected, asher yishlutu, that they would that they would control, subdue, vanquish, of course, destroy. That's what they had expected. Ibn Ezra, incidentally, says, Asher Sibru, he says, Like all eyes look to you expectantly. Or we raise hopeful eyes to Hashem. That comes from the 145th Psalm, what we call Ashrei in our daily prayers. So he says it's the same idea. We were, everybody was hoping for this, looking forward to it, expectantly awaiting the time. Yet it was a lot of anti-Semitism. They were looking forward to killing us. There was a great deal of excitement going on. People didn't have to be convinced. They didn't have to be poisoned. 
They didn't have to be educated with hate speech. That's just not true. They heard there was an opportunity to wipe out the Jewish people. They were only too happy to comply. You know, when you go to Yad Vashem, they tell you a story. There's, an, there's a narrative. And the narrative of the story is they show you the rise of Hitler, Yamach Shemo, may his name be blotted out for eternity, and his brown-shirted hordes, led by a maniacal house painter with his oratory, he manages to inflame a nation. And with his poison oratory, he essentially implants heart, poison or hatred in the hearts of his nation. And eventually, that leads to the Holocaust. That's the narrative that, that, that you kind of learn as you walk through the halls there. It's true on some level. But it misses a, a very, very big part of the story. At least that's my humble opinion. It's the part of the story that we read about in the Megillah, and it's the part of the story that has fueled anti-Semitism continuously across the ages. It's part of the story of what's fueling anti-Semitism today. In the present cancel culture, if you speak out against an ethnic group, a faith system, or a lifestyle, you'll be docked forever. You'll simply be deleted and wiped off the face of success in society. There is one glaring exception. Spotify hasn't purged all the anti-Semitic rants, nor do I expect they will. If you speak about things anti-Semitic, you might get docked from your show for a week or two, but that's all. Because sadly, nothing has changed. In Yad Vashem, they tell you the story of what happened in Germany, but I ask the question, pray tell, who inspired, if you want to use that word, or poisoned the minds of so many of the Polish collaborators, who themselves were viewed as a lower race by the Germans, and yet so eagerly participating in the mass murder and genocide, I don't have to read that from books, I heard that from people who saw it. In 1946, when my grandparents escaped the Soviet Union, where they were to escape the Nazis, when they came into Poland, the first night when my father was a baby, they were in the ghetto in Lodz. And guess what happened? A group of locals came to kill the Jews who came back. How they were saved is another story. Who poisoned their minds? Who poisoned the minds of the hordes of Lithuanians who murdered their own neighbors overnight. 96% of Lithuanian Jewry was exterminated. 96%. Over the course of several months, well over 100 shtetlach were wiped off the face of the earth. No trains, no gas chambers, just open pits dug by the victims themselves, brutally slain mass murdered, many of them buried alive. I know, my family comes from there. Who poisoned those minds? Who poisoned the mind of the willing executioners in Ukraine, in Estonia, in Latvia, in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia? I know there were righteous Gentiles, far and few in between. That's why we recognize them. Who poisoned the hearts and the minds 
of people living in Belgium. Yes, there were people who were freedom fighters. So many weren't. So you see, my friends, this was, this is the story of our people. And this was the day Asher Sibru Oive Hayehudim Lishlik Behem. The enemies of the Jewish people were all waiting for this day. Looking forward to it expectantly. What happened? Vinahapich. Miraculously, not because of our own courage or strength or self-determination. Things were turned inside out. Not only were they not successful, but the Megillah says, Asha Yishlatu Hayehudim Hema, the Jewish people instead ruled over Bisoinehem, over their adversaries. Now, another thing to note is that Oive Hayehudim, we're looking forward to this, and Oyev and Asona are not one and the same. So we first talk about this idea that enemies were there and then there were those who hated them. Asona is a hater. It's more than an adversary. The word sina means hate. An oyev is an enemy. Who are the enemies? Who are the haters? What is Devar HaMelech? What is Dosai? What really is going on here in this verse? On the surface you read it, the day came and we rose up and we defended ourselves. And everything turned out fine and dandy. Well, they try to kill us. Instead, we kill them. We survived. We triumphed. You know, as the joke goes, let's eat. But in fact, if you read the Megillah carefully, there is a very, very different story that is being told to us. The Alshech reminds us that Haman, Haman, Yemachshimo, did not send out the same kinds of letters to everybody. There was the populace. They got one message. There was the upper crust of society. They got a different message. And then there was the actual ruling class, or those who made and enforced the law. They got the third message. The messaging was deliberately vague because Haman didn't want to alert the Jewish people to what was coming their way. He wanted to make sure that we didn't activate our, quote, Jewish lobby. As I pointed out in a number of episodes way back, when we talked about Haman's decree, the Nazis, Yimach Shumam, also did not emphasize what exactly they were doing. In fact, they didn't want to leave a paper trail. They called the sending of Jews to the gas chambers, quote, Sonderbehandlung, special handling, cargo that had to be dealt with in a special way. They didn't write slated for gassing and, and crematorium, special handling. They didn't leave a paper trail. They were supposedly flying under the radar so that people could claim not to have known, seen, or heard of any evil. Never mind that the United States of America, yes, the president had information. And he had the maps of the trains. 
one sortie, one bombing of those trains could likely have saved the lives of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, because it would have stopped the killing machine in its tracks. It's a sortie that was never flown. It couldn't be diverted from the war effort, Jewish activists were told. These are not theories, these are facts. You can Google them and discover them for yourself. We live in Canada. Prime Minister Mackenzie King was asked how many Jewish refugees he would take in. Infamously, <laughs> his answer was one or none is too many. None is too many. So here we have Oive. We have the enemies of the Jewish people who are expectantly waiting. And the message that came out was deliberately vague. What was the message? The message initially for the people was, wait for this day. All peoples are called to come together to defend against our common enemy in the day. No details were yet given. Details to be followed. And so, this was something which the Jewish people became aware of. Mordechai, prophetically. And that's where he sets into motion the series of events that leads to the miraculous hanging of Haman just a few days later. But now, Mordechai and Esther had to return to King Ahasuerus and had to remonstrate with him that the order had never been rescinded. And Ahasuerus says, well, I, I can't rescind the orders. Because he was worried about Ahasuerus, not the Jewish people. He said, that's not going to look very good if the king rescinds orders. That, that goes against the law. He became very lawful suddenly. And so the best they could get was another letter that was sent. The, the Alshech says the problem was this now. There were two letters, so to speak, or royal edicts out there. One said, everybody be prepared. All nations come together against one common enemy. People understood. And yet, then there was a new letter that said the Jewish people are allowed to defend themselves. And here says the Alshech came the choice of impossibles. An impossible choice. The Jewish people faced a, a catch-22. On one hand, he says, there was royal orders which were soisim ze'ezeh. We had royal orders that contradicted one another. In the second order, permission was given for the Jewish people to defend themselves. But that's all. There was no rule, so to speak, that the Jewish people could take the offensive. On the other hand, their enemies had precisely such a missive. Now, Mordechai sent letters indicating that the Jewish people would be able to take initiative, but the problem was this became a contradiction. And they weren't sure of how to proceed. If the Jewish people would not simply defend themselves, but take the offensive, which is, of course, the best defense. Because when you're in a defensive position, you're waiting to be attacked. You don't have the ability to choose conditions that are 
best for the confrontation. But on the other hand, if they were to launch a offensive, a defensive offensive, then they were afraid that law enforcement, the armed forces, and the political echelon would clamp down on them, saying that had never yet been permitted. And so this is the confusion, if you will, that reigned at the time, and a great deal of uncertainty gripped the Jewish people as this day arrived. It's not quite the way we perceive the story to be. It wasn't so simple at all. At best, we would be able to defend ourselves, it seemed. What happened? Well, what happened was that the Jewish people did gather together. And that leads us into verse 2, and we'll come back to verse 1 soon, but I want to go into verse 2 because one verse kind of flows into the next. Nikalu hayehudim ba'orehem. The Jewish people gathered together in their cities. Bechol medinot ha-melech in all provinces under the king, Achashverosh, l'shloach yod, b'mavak to see what they could do to offensively, so to speak, send forth a hand against those who sought their evil. And the emphasis is very clear here. They only sought to send forth a hand and those who would attack the Jewish people. So they came together and there was a tentative, maybe kind of like testing the waters to see what would happen. Nobody stood before them. And they realized that there's nobody who's going to be launching any attacks. Because suddenly there was this fear, this sense of awe from all the nations that had previously been anticipating murdering them were suddenly in awe and afraid to rise up against them. Now the Ma'am Lois quotes a very early commentary suggesting that the Jewish people had actually run away from the large municipal areas because they figured the persecution would be worse there. And if they went to small towns and villages, they'd have an easier time hiding out or maybe escaping the wrath that was coming their way. So this was their way of skirting the storm. And now, having heard that the Jewish people were empowered to defend themselves, they returned home. They were comfortable coming back into the cities. They knew that there would be strength in numbers. So they weren't hiding, trying to hide out in the countryside, as Jews did in Hungary, Poland, and so many other places during the war. But instead, they were quite comfortable being in the large municipal areas. And what happened? Here we have a fascinating teaching from the Dina Pshara who says, you need to understand that they didn't do anything to bring forth this fear. They didn't have time to train, to arm themselves. They saw nobody was rising up against them. So the Dina Pshara says, There was this light, this energy, this charisma, if you will, that emanated from the Jewish people. And this was This was totally unnatural. There was a, a people, the Jewish people, were, were looked at as victims. 
the people that were hated and despised and were going to be wiped out. And now all of a sudden, everybody's afraid of them. He says, euphemistically, it's as if like, you know, there's a, a great light and people just melt away from light, like darkness is banished by virtue of light. They were suddenly hiding. The enemies didn't want to show themselves to the Jewish people. So the Jewish people were banding together, getting ready to defend themselves. No attack is being launched. Their enemies are running scared. When they see this happen, they realize that the tables have turned. Now, how about the upper echelons of society? That takes us into verse 3. The upper echelons weren't really afraid, if you will. If you talk about the uh, ministers, the courtiers, the, the higher level of what we would call the government of Persia at the time, the princes of the provinces, what they call in English the satraps, that's how they translate this idea of Achashdarpanim and Pachot, king's administrators, the governors, or the Aisyah those who did the work of the king, those who were in government employment. All of these people, Ashalamelech Menasim Esayyudim, they're exalting. Supporting, lifting up the profile of the Jewish people. Why? Because they were afraid of Mordechai's influence. So the ordinary populace was afraid of the Jewish populace. The clerisy or the upper crust of society who answered to the king and was aware of the inner workings as well as the confusion in orders and the lack of clarity about what was supposed to happen were already under the influence of Mordechai and afraid to do anything else. And so they not only stood down, they actively aided, abetted, and supported the Jewish people in their struggle. In the, in the late 17th century, let me rephrase it, late 18th century, there was a great Gaon, his name was Zabyankiv of Lisa. And he wrote, amongst many other things, a fascinating commentary on the Megillah, which is called Megillah Sturm, the secret Megillah. And in his Megillah Sturm, he writes the following. He says, the, the purpose of all of these verses is lahagdil hanes, is to emphasize to you, not to magnify, because actually this is what happened, but to make you aware of the magnitude of the miracle. He says, the nature is, when there is an order which is vague, not really clear. And there's different ways to interpret what the king is saying. Now, the law is deliberately written in a vague fashion. And people could understand it or interpret it. Haman and his supporters interpreted the edict of the king as lihiyos asidim, that the Jewish people should be ready to get what's coming. Meaning, to liberate, commit genocide against the entire nation of the Jewish people. 
Mordechai sends his elucidation of the king's vague order, be ready on this day. His order says exactly the opposite. Hoyoroi, at least, at the very least, he says, confusion should have reigned. It should have been a question. What do you do? So the Megillah Storm says, this is precisely the message that is being conveyed to us in the beginning of the ninth chapter of the Megillah, that despite the confusion, there was perfect clarity. Mobs are never clear about what's going on, except for this time. Mahashem hoyu, this is miraculous. That Mordechai's reputation continued to grow. And that, he says, is why. Initially it says, And then he goes and he starts to trace his way through the upper echelons and says, Why is it that everybody interpreted this in favor of Mordechai? Because of Mordechai's reputation. He's a new kid on the block, a new star. And he eclipsed the star and the shine of Haman almost overnight. The Megillah star says something very interesting. He says the Jewish people did not target innocent people or people who were bystanders. Maybe people who would have been only too happy to persecute the Jewish people, but were not actually aggressively prosecuting them. He says we're talking about the people who were enemies of the Jewish people. I'm going to get back to enemies in a minute. Who were the real enemies of the Jewish people? He says the enemies of the Jewish people, this is the Amalekites. As it says, the Amalekites, perhaps in today's day and age, this is what you would call the neo-Nazis. The skinheads. Their philosophy of hate and anti-Semitism, if you want to call it a philosophy, is uh, perpetuated. So he says, the truth is that this was announced amongst the nations and the nations turned against the Amalekites. Suddenly, the white supremacists weren't popular anymore. He says there was a little jealousy about Haman's rise. People were quiet and suddenly they weren't. And as the Jewish people gathered, a groundswell of support, popular support, shifted in their direction. The Megillah Star maintains that the common person on the street who didn't know the details felt a sense of awe, fear, and trepidation from what he perceived to be the power of the Jewish people. The people who did know the details, he says. And that's who the Jewish people were afraid of. If they went after their enemies, what if law enforcement gets involved? What if, what if national security, so to speak, meddles or mixes in? And so that's why we hear of, in verse 3 of Sore Hamedines, of Akashdarpanim and Pachis, of all of these governors and satraps and, and, and princes, that Menasim is Hayyuhudim. They're suddenly exalting, aiding, and assisting the Jewish people. So initially, they came together, they rose up to defend themselves. And as they realized that the temperature, the weather had changed, and that the landscape had radically shifted in a matter of hours they went from a defensive position of being able to fend off the attacks to go on the offensive 
And all of this happened in, in a matter of hours at most, because it all took place in one day. That doesn't really make sense. Something like this has never happened again. It's never been replicated. Where a nation that was targeted for execution, for genocide, in one day, in a matter of hours, shifts from being beleaguered, defensive, to going on the offensive and prosecuting their enemies, hunting them down one by one, with all of the political echelon and the support of law enforcement and the national defense coming down on their side to aid in the system. Now, the Vilna Gaon says something very interesting about the, the seeming redundancy of the words that are used there. He says, let me rephrase that. The, the seeming, hmm, not redundancy, the opposite, the, the shifting of, the, of, of, the, of language. That in the beginning we talk about oivim, the enemies, and then we go to haters. So the Vilna Gaon says like this in Biragro. He says an oyev is a person who is motivated to actually go ahead and do something to you. He's a real enemy. The soina, the hater. The haters are, you know, they're all over the haters. They hate us. They rejoice in our misfortune. Hasameach barase. They're not going to pick themselves up and actually do anything, but they're delighted when things go wrong. So he says, the Oyev, if you look in the Pasuk, it says, they were waiting for this day. The Oyev is the enemy, the enemy planned to dominate. The enemy planned to kill us. And what happened? Not only did the enemy not have the ability to kill us, but our enemies became our supporters. The anti-Semites, which was so common, rank and file citizens of the country, all of a sudden became loud and proud supporters of the Jewish people as they went after the neo-Nazis of the day, after the Amalekites, the Hamanites, the Oivin, the enemies who sought to carry out our extinction. So this is a very interesting, so to speak, shift. And he says, the, the, the um, Vilna Gaon says something even, like he goes even deeper. He says, Hema nehem. He says you should know that some of these anti-Semites were so twisted with hate that they had sunken into the proverbial 49 gates of hate. And Hema actually is the equivalent of 50. Hey, hey is 5 and 5 is 10 and Mem is, is, is 40. So he says, And instead, So all these haters, a whole degree, many haters, many of them had fallen to the lowest level of their hate and anti-Semitism. And everything turned upside down. He says the reason that in, we, in, the ver, in the verse 3 we say Nafal pachad Mordechai alehem, the average person on the street didn't know Mordechai, didn't understand what was going on in the political workings. There was the man on the street, what you would call the, the political environment that, that radically shifted on the street. The street changed 
And then there was a political atmosphere that changed. He says, those who knew more, they appreciated and understood Mordechai's position, and he was tremendously revered. So Menasim, the Vilna Gaon says, Mechabdim, they honored. However, others maintain that it was more than just honored. The Ma'am Lois quotes a, an, an, an ancient Sefer, he says, a Sefer Yoshan, that talks about Oise HaMalacha. Who are these Oise HaMalacha? Who are these workers? He maintains, the Sefer Yoshan, that these workers were Ha'oisim Matbois HaKesef. They were the ones involved in minting of currency. Or those involved in the distribution of the national budget. And he says, they paid, they financed the Jewish defense. It's not cheap to mount defense. You need weapons. You need assistance. In fact, in the Moise that I've cooked, Pirush, they say, and I don't know what the source is, that's to say, but in the word menasim, yesh b'mashma mechabdi moisim, and the Vilna Gaon clearly says that word honor. And he says, yesh b'mashma mesayim biyodam matnes kesef, that's a Sefer Yoshan. And he says, he adds in parentheses, ule gambach lizayin, they may even have added weaponry. They may have supplied weapons for Am Yisrael to defend themselves. And he suggests that that's indicated by the Gemara in Meseches Avedizorah. So the point is that we saw a radical overnight shift. Because when this day arrived, we began it in a very defensive posture. Trying to come together, beleaguered, seeking shelter or safety in numbers. And in a matter of hours, after Nikalu, Be'oreim in their cities, trying to find a safe place to be, what happens is, nobody stands before them. Nobody stands before them. They interpret this to mean that everything has shifted and changed. They realize, They realize that they are, that they are not in the position of weakness having to defend themselves, but rather they will be dictating the terms of this conflict. And so when they see and they realize that's what's happening, and they realize that nobody is standing before them, and they realize that the government, all levels of power, are backing up the Jewish people, aiding, abetting, encouraging, helping in any way, because because of what has shifted, that will take us into verse 4 and 5. In verse 4, we speak about the power of Mordechai. And in verse 5, we speak about the actual details of the battle of how the Jewish people had gone up against their enemies. So in this, in this, in this sense, we see a, a radical shift that has taken place. Now, I want to share with you something really interesting. So this is much of what I said is, is, is simple pshat. In our classes on the Megillah, I've shared with you many, many times that there is a Targum, which we don't believe it's written by Unculus, but it's more or less from the Mishnah times. And then there is a Targum Sheni, a secondary Targum, which is much more Midrashic. It seems to have developed its first mention, I think, in the Sheiltis, the time of the Geonim. So this is going about 16 centuries. We don't know if it's 15 or 16 centuries old, somewhere around there. The regular Targum usually just gives us translation and doesn't add many 
if you will, midrashic kind of um, additions. We don't, we don't get, we don't get like different, another story being told. We're getting the straight goods, the straight translation. Very interestingly, in the beginning of verse 9, the Targum Sheni is pretty straightforward. But in the regular Targum, I noticed something fascinating. And I want to share it with you. And, and then I'm going to tell you what I think it might, how, how it might be applied, how it might be understood or, or interpreted. The Targum adds seven words. He says, Ve'ishapich min shmaya. He adds the words from heaven. The verse, the Pasuk says, V'nahapichu, things were turned about. The Targum adds the words, min shmaya, from heaven. And then he adds another three words. Begin zechuta avasa by virtue of the merit of our ancestors. It's very interesting. The Mepharshim talk about the power of tshuva. We, the Jewish people, had returned to Hashem. So Hashem empowered us, not only to defend ourselves, but to destroy our enemies. What does the Targum mean when it says, begin zechuta davusa? So first of all, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer, per se. But here's, I'm sorry, from outside to inside. Okay. If you have any real questions, I'm happy to try to answer them. But it uh, looks like this. Uh, some anti-Semites who are trying to bomb our Megillah class. Okay. So the Maharal of Prague, in his commentary, Archadosh, he emphasizes that there are three categories of shifting that are talked about. He said in the end of the eighth chapter, we hear about Rabim Mityadim. We hear about many people embracing Judaism. In fact, at, at, uh, when we were learning this, I share with you the words of Rashi. Rashi says, Mityadim Mitgairim. They were like embracing the ethos of Judaism. And there's a question of in the sages whether this is to be taken literally or not literally. But the bottom line is whether they actually converted or embraced Jewish ideas and ideals of monotheism, there was a tremendous amount of positive, spiritual, ethical, moral influence that came about as a result of this miracle. Now we come to verse to chapter 9, and in chapter 9 we hear about Nafal Pachdamaleim. We hear about the anti-Semites. We hear about the people who did not embrace Jewish values, people who had expected and looked forward to seeing the suffering of the Jewish people, to watch with glee as we were persecuted, but suddenly they are standing down. They're terrified. And then he says, there's the upper echelons of the political and, and law enforcement ranks that were in awe of Mordechai, that appreciated who Mordechai was. So the Maharal of, of Prague says like this. He says, it is reasonable to suggest that these three categories of people who are influenced in different ways are all in the merit of the avot, of the patriarchs. Now I'm going to tell you, I think that the Maharal is basing his idea on the par- a Targum, although I don't know this with certainty. So he says like this, 
Let's first talk about the Rabbi Mityadim. Let's talk about the idea of people embracing the concept of Jewish values, ideas, or ideals, or even maybe converting. What is the most fundamental essence of the Jewish faith? Hashem Echad. The idea that God is one. We do not believe chas v'shalom in Godheads. We don't worship any other deities. And we also don't believe in the power of negativity, darkness. We don't believe in a Satan. We don't believe there is anything other than God. Of course, this is theologically very, very difficult to understand. Where does all the bad stuff come from? Where does all the darkness come from? That's an excellent question. Much of it we have to accept on faith, not rhyme and reason or rationale. But as we say in our daily prayers, Yotzer Or, Uvorei Choshech. God forms light and he creates darkness. And everything comes from Hashem. And this is encapsulated in the famous verse, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Where does that verse come from? We are taught this verse in Deuteronomy. What is the origin of the verse? The Gemara in Mesechet Psachim on page 56, and this is quoted by Rashi in the verse in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, he says that Yaakov Avinu was the only one of the patriarchs to influence all of his progeny. There was no Ishmael who went, so to speak, in a different direction. There certainly was no Esav. All of his family remained loyal, the 12 Shvatim, the foundation of Am Yisrael. Yaakov Avinu, in his last moments of life, was concerned with one thing, the future. Would the ideas and ideals of the patriarchs survive? Would they be kept alive? Would they be perpetuated? Would his children become the Am Yisrael that Hashem had ordained it for? And the answer was, he had a concern. He looked around. His children, they sensed exactly what was bothering their father. And so they said, Shema Yisrael. Yisrael was the other name of Yaakov. Listen, Yisrael. Hashem Elokeinu. Hashem Echad. So Yaakov was able to influence his children and ultimately the larger orbit by virtue of the force of his spiritual charisma and his teachings. Says the Maharal, the first impact is the impact. This is we were empowered by Yaakov Avinu. Every one of us can make a difference. Every one of us can uplift, can inspire, can bring people around to recognize the supremacy of Hashem and the singular nature of God's presence. Then he says, we come to the second level. People who were not moved, they weren't inspired by Jewish ideas and ideals, but they weren't going to get in our way. They weren't going to in any way, shape, or form molest the Jewish people. In fact, they were afraid of us. And fear can be experienced in a positive way in what we call respect. It's a sense of awe. This, he says, corresponds to Yitzchak. As it is written, Father Jacob, when he speaks about God, and he wants to say, my father's God, but his father's still alive, he says the dread, the fear, the terror, the awe of, Yaak, of Yitzchak. So therefore, in the merit of Yitzchak, nafal pachdom kol all nations who had been only too ready 
to gleefully watch the genocide of the Jewish people just the way they did a short 75, 80 years ago, suddenly were terrified of Am Yisrael. And finally he says, Keneged Avraham, this is the spirit or the virtue or merit of Avraham Avinu. That's get, that brings us to verse 3. Vesari hamedines menasim oisam. The upper crust of society, the leadership of society, the clerisy, the intelligentsia, the lawmakers, the proverbial princes of the land, law enforcement, national defense. They're called, if you will, the leadership. This comes from Avraham Avinu. Ki Avraham is called Nasi Elekim Atabesecheno. They come to Avraham and they say, We may have leadership, but you come with a force of a different kind of authority. You're Nasi Elekim. You're the Prince of God. As a result of this, we merited. That they were elevating Am Yisrael. They didn't simply say, We're in awe or we're standing down. We don't want to start up. They actively assisted. They enabled us to do what had to be done. Why? Because they were in awe and had a deep-seated respect for the character and the influence of Mordechai, who had now become the prime minister of the country. And so, this perhaps is what the, what the Targum alludes to when it says, What you see here is not natural. This is not the story of self-determination. This is not the story of courage, bravery. This is not the story of a Jewish people who, quote, rose up to defend themselves. Yes, we the Jewish people rose up and Hashem miraculously enabled a full turnabout, a total transformation of the situation. And this total transformation was such that ultimately, Am Yisrael was not only able to defend itself from his enemies, but Am Yisrael was able to go after their enemies. As we will learn, as a result of the battle that was carried out by the Jewish people, this offensive defense, in the end, the enemies of the Jewish people were quelled. And on the heels of this miracle, Am Yisrael returned to Eretz Yisrael, and the second base of Migdash was rebuilt. Now, there's another whole story that's alluded to in these verses. I'm just going to mention it, and I'm going to, I'm going to share with you that I, I plan to address this on a different day. <laughs> on, the, on the beginning of the second verse where it says, Nikalu hayehudim, the Jewish people gathered, the word Nikalu is the very same Hebrew word that's used for kehila. Kehilah means congregation or congregated. The Rosh, as well as the Riyaz, in the first chapter of Megillah, speak about this idea that the Jewish people came together before battle in prayer. They held prayer rallies. And that as a result of this, we, Am Yisrael, until this very day, before going to celebrate Purim, we first fast on the 13th day of Adar, reminiscent of Nikhalu HaYehudim, how our ancestors prepared for this self-defensive, offensive battle. And it is called the Tanit, the fast of Esther. But the truth is, 
that it's a much, much larger subject. And it's far more than simply commentary on the verses. I wanted to share with you the commentary on the verse, so you should know that there is this element of it. It is being conveyed to us. But Be'ezrat Hashem, on Tainat Esther, I will teach another uh, episode in the Customs and Convention series. And I'm going to talk about the concept of Tanit Esther, why we fast on the 13th day, what is the meaning of it, and why it's called Tanit Esther. We know why the Megillah is called Megillah Esther, but why should the fast be named for Esther? There's a tremendous amount of fascinating information available, including two amazing insights from the Rebbe, one from 1970, Purim 1970, and another in Purim of 1989, where the Rebbe shared very, very interesting and new perspectives on this, but Be'ezrat Hashem, that will be returned to. Thank you for joining today. I hope you found the teachings of the Megillah uplifting, inspirational. I'd appreciate it if you could like and share. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. And we will continue, Be'ezrat Hashem, in the weeks ahead to move our way through the ninth chapter of Megillat Esther so that we can decode its messages in a manner that inspires, uplifts, and strengthens and fortifies our faith as we face difficult challenges in a difficult time from which we shall surely emerge Be'ezrat Hashem triumphant. Thank you for joining. Have a beautiful day.